Hello, and welcome to SOAR, Jatheta. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, I am so excited to have you on the show, and I'm really excited about this topic. I know we're going into the Labor Day weekend, so when I think about you know Labor Day, we're celebrating people who labor and people who work, and we're getting ready to talk about Black Wall Street and building wealth and building the table. So I think this is a great time to raise our awareness about it as we're going into this holiday that we like to call Labor Day. Uh, but I really wanted to start by introducing you to my guests. And so I'm going to uh, share your bio. Jathita Hernandez has been seen as a national advocate for entrepreneurship and economic mobilization for over 20 years. As a success business and growth strategist and speaker, Jathita has created a buzz for her business savvy, natural leadership and selfless partnership creation. Jathita also serves as the senior director for strategic alliances and program for the National Minority Supplier Development Council. In this capacity, she manages relationships and oversees program development, working to build strong alliances that aid in the growth, sustainability, and success of minority businesses. Jathita is also a guest lecturer and adjunct business professor at Coppin State University in Baltimore, Maryland. In addition, she's the founding owner and CEO of Consult Square Group and franchise owner of Card My Yard Howard. A native of Richmond, Virginia, Jathita holds a Bachelor of Business Administration from James Madison University and a Master of Business Administration from the University of Miami. Jathita has received numerous honors, including being named as one of the 39 under 39 finest professionals in Howard County, Maryland by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and being awarded as one of Maryland's top women by the Maryland Daily Digest. Jathita is a 22-year member of the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. She serves on the board of the third, as well as being a member of the NAACP, Jack and Jill of America, Maryland, um, Black Chamber of Congress, and the National NBA Association. Wow. So um, you are very accomplished, and I just want to say that I admire you very much, and I'm just really excited to be able to have this conversation with you. So I always start off with everybody by asking them their story. Um, I think that the way that we kind of connect and grow and learn and build community is by sharing our stories. So I would love to just hear your story of how you came to, to be where you are today. Yeah, and, and I'd like to start off by thanking you so much for having me. You know, I've watched you on, um, you know, personally through Jack and Jill and then on social media, all of your, uh, everything that you're doing, your coaching, and it, it's just marvelous. So kudos and hats off to you. You are so lovely and brilliant. And I'm just honored that you thought of me to be on your show. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, I think it, it's always funny when my uh, bio is read out loud in front of me because I sometimes cringe like, wow, that's that's a lot that I am doing at one time. And then kind of coupling that with my story, you know, it, it kind of makes sense because um, a, as you read, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and um, I was raised by my mom and my grandmother. And both of them were the exact same way. I, I watched them both my entire life. Uh, both of them had businesses. My grandmother was a stylist uh, and owned several salons and a cosmetology school in Richmond. Uh, my mom had a consulting business when I was growing up. She also was a, a hairstylist and she just did a, a number of things. So I always saw strong women uh, working hard to accomplish the things in life that they they wanted to accomplish, that they needed to accomplish for their families. And it wasn't, um, it, didn't, it didn't come off as a hard task for them to do. They pulled it off so 
beautifully and and flawlessly and I would watch my grandmother every day you know she would get up early and you know and cook breakfast and go into the shop and do hair all day and come home and cook dinner and still watch the Cosby show with me you know and mm-hmm. as if you know she hadn't done this all day it was it was so beautiful um and so when when I went to college I kind of had grown up doing everything. I was in Girl Scouts. I was, you know, I was in organizations. I was cheering. I was, you know, so my mom really exposed me to a lot. And by the time I went to college, I was so used to doing so many multiple things at one time. It just seemed very natural for me to get to college and, you know, to join the choir, to join college level NAACP, to pledge uh, AKA and to do all of these things at the same time while still maintaining, maintaining, you know, a good, a, a good enough GPA. <laughs> uh, uh, when, when I left college and I'm sure we'll dive a little bit deeper into how I kind of transitioned into uh, economic development. But when I, when I left college, I started working in the entertainment industry um, my, yeah, I, I, my senior year of college, I actually had a, a job offer from Sony Music where I was the, uh, the college marketing rep for the colleges in uh, Virginia and some in uh, DC and part of Maryland. So while I was in college, I would on the weekend travel through these states to colleges on tour with different artists and hitting radio stations, providing them with music and um, did that my entire senior year of college. And when I graduated from JMU, I ended up uh, taking an offer from Black Entertainment Television where I worked for about three years uh, before I went back to get my master's uh, in Miami. And uh, it was kind of during that transition to Miami and then back up to the Maryland DC area that I really got um, interested in, in business and business development. And I was always interested in entrepreneurship, but I just knew where the path that my, my grandmother and my mother took to do hair. I didn't want to do hair. I wanted to be on another side. I just didn't know what that was until later in life. So I think that's kind of where the transition, piv- you know, that pivot kind of took place for me. Okay. So you have always been kind of doing a lot of things. And so it just feels, it feels natural to you. Um, okay. Well, thank you for sharing about your mother and your grandmother and the influences. I think that that has so much to do with how we envision ourselves, um, the role models that we have growing up and seeing uh, other women, because I know you work a lot with women who are able to have their own businesses is a great thing to be able to see growing up when you're, when you're thinking about having your own. So I, when you talked about all of the different things that you do, you just seem so young to me to have accomplished all of the things that you've done Um, and I see that you, um, I know that you are an expert in terms of economic empowerment and women entrepreneurship. Um, I could easily have named this pink wall street instead of black wall street in terms of focusing on, on women. And I, and I might just change the name. I I was thinking about that. I'm like, maybe (laughs) I think that would be fun. I haven't heard anybody coin that yet. I'm sure somebody said it before, but when you're young and you're this accomplished, you know, some people talk about having imposter syndrome and things like that. But when did you first realize that you were an expert? Well, I can tell you when I first realized that I needed to make a difference in this space. Um, I think that for me was one of, was a bit more pivotal than kind of the the development as a thought leader. So I I remember working for uh, an entertainment company, one that I I didn't mention. (laughs) And (laughs) I had this great idea. I mean, I I thought this idea was the next thing smoking. I mean, um, so I worked on it, worked hard. I 
you know, put my notes together and I got an opportunity to talk to the CEO, the CEO of this entertainment company, the very familiar. Um, so I had my opportunity, go in, have this meeting. You know, I'm very polished. I think I am. I got my notes. I'm going through, I'm pitching. I'm, you know, I'm how, how, how can he say no to this? I'm about to be the VP of this whole company. I'm thinking in my head. So he looks at me and he says, okay, but I'll tell you this. This is my company that I built. And as long as I'm making the type of money doing the type of programming that I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing that. Wow. So I picked my my pride up and walked out of the room <laughs> and I was a little broken. But one thing that he said that stuck with me is that it is his business and mm -hmm. it was his right to make every decision. And unless you own, unless you can say this is mine, then you will never have the ultimate control or the ultimate say over how anything is done. Um, and that's not a knock to anyone who works in nine to five at all. But that point when he said that to me, it was like, it was that moment where I knew, you know what, I, that's, that's exactly right. You know, that is the game changer is when you can actually pivot and have your something that is yours that you can kind of define and make the rules. Um, I think to me, that was, I wouldn't say that's what kind of triggered me to be an expert, but it humbled me enough to see that um, entrepreneurship and the road to economic, uh, economic, the driver of economic mobility for the Black community or communities of color started with owning for yourself. Um, whatever that looked like for you, whether you're a service business, whether you're you have a bricks and mortar retail, a product, whatever it is, when you have that control and when you understand the market enough to be successful at it, that is when you are a, an expert in your own right, because you're an expert at your own future and you're the only one who can kind of pave that way for yourself. Mm. I love that, an expert at your own future. And I can only imagine what that felt like in that moment. You know, you thought that this was going to be the next oh, thing. It was it just blew out your little light, um, but left you with a really important message and probably a little bit of fire to figure that thing out so that you could make the rules for yourself. I attended a conference at Duke University a few months ago, and one of the panels was on Black Wall Street. And one of the things that I realized while participating in that panel um, was that there were so many different definitions of Black Wall Street. Some people define it in its historical con concept of what actually existed and you know got burned down, and some people define it as a virtual space of um, Black people coming together, bringing their wealth together. So as we have this conversation on Black Wall Street, which we may turn into Pink Wall Street, um, I would love to hear what your definition is of Black Wall Street. Sure, sure. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, there are so many different definitions of it and all are very relevant to the Black community. Black Wall Street in, in Tulsa, um, in an area, Greenwood. And in Greenwood, what is most relevant as we think of and as we there are so many resurgence of black wall street communities across the country is that in in greenwood it was said that the black dollar stayed within the black community for a hundred days minimum meaning that black community members their dollars circulated among other black businesses and was turned over for a hundred days before it left the black community. So when we think about black wall street now, what it means to me is it isn't just the businesses because we can have communities where there are thriving black businesses, but are there also black people within those communities that 
will patronize those businesses and continue to turn over that money in Black businesses and in Black communities such that that cycle continues because that's the way that that wealth in Greenwood was able to flourish the way that it did because the money stayed right within that community. And today, do you know how long the, the Black dollar stays in the Black community? Um, I, I don't even want to guess. I would say maybe three days. Six hours. Yeah. Six hours. Six um, hours. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the white community, it's 17 days. In the wow. Asian community, it's 30 days. Wow. It's six hours that our dollar stays within our community. And, and that's... Um, that should that should speak to us. Mm -hmm. That should speak to us because it's never that there is a lack of the things that we need created by people of color, right? If we if we were intentional about our spending, we could find mostly anything we needed created by someone who looked like us um, to make that difference, or at least to be more intentional about our purchasing. Um, to kind of tap into that Black Wall Street feeling, into that Black Wall Street community, because that's what truly made Black Wall Street. Yeah, uh, I did not know that. Thank you for sharing that information. And one of our listeners also thought that that was good information. But um, yeah, I'm still, I, th I think I'm still like tongue tied over hearing that six hours. And then when you say the Asian community, 30 days, uh, it makes sense intuitively just watching how certain businesses move and in certain communities. So I'm going to have to process that and, and think about some calls to action around that, or maybe you'll have some for us by the end of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it definitely requires kind of a shift in thinking because I think we we spent so long, you know, as you think about the civil rights and we were fighting because we wanted to be, we wanted to do everything with everybody else. We wanted to be equal. We wanted yeah. to kind of be, uh, I see Kimberly's question that within the Latino community, it's, it's 19 days. Um, we wanted to be so equal and have all the access that we kind of stepped away from, you know, our own roots and our own cultures of supporting, supporting our own people and our own businesses. Um, and I think until we kind of make that adjustment, until we're intentional about our spending and intentional about our buying habits to support, you know, Black businesses, it'll be it'll be hard for us to kind of recreate that Black Wall Street experience. It'll be hard for us to kind of recreate that Black Wall Street experience. Yes, absolutely. I know that we have many listeners who are yes. absolutely I know that we have. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. It, it, it was so, so good information. We just had to hear it a couple times over. Right, exactly. We just need, needed it on repeat. Uh, I, I love technology. Um, I know that we have uh, listeners and, and people who are women business owners, who are Black business owners. And I would love from your perspective, especially now that we have this knowledge, what does it take for us to be successful as a woman-led entrepreneur or Black woman-led entrepreneur? What are some of the things that you've learned uh, in your experience? I would say the number one thing is that there are no rules to it. You know, there are no rules to being a business owner. You kind of make and define what that success looks like to your life. And when people say to me, well, I want to start a business. I want to get my business plan together. My first question is, do you have a life plan? Because mm. I need to see how you want a business to fit into your life 
in order for me to be able to assess what type of business journey you're going to have. Because if you are, if your, your, your life plan is sending you down a path where, you know, that doesn't necessarily have, you know, it doesn't fit what your business goals are, then it may delay you opening a business or you starting that business for a couple of years. Um, for me, I have, as you mentioned in my, in my bio, I have a job that I do. I have two businesses and I also teach and it's by design and it's by, because that's the way I want it. <laughs> you know, it's not because I have to do any of those things. And it was, it took me realizing I don't have to choose. I don't have to choose one over the other. I can do all of them. Um, and that's fine because that's my journey. And I think for a lot of women in particular, we have a picture of what entrepreneurship looks like or a picture of what a successful business looks like. And we kind of mimic that, that route for them. And I find that the most successful businesses are identifying what their goals are for their business. I want to be a business owner where I just replace my income. I have a $60,000 job. I want to have a business where I make $60,000. I want to basically be self-employed. Or I want a business where I can employ 60,000 people. That's two mm -hmm. different mindsets to think about. And that's two different ways to start a business because now we're talking about scaling and how you put in place those measures to scale your business to be able to create jobs for 60,000 people or even, you know, six people for that matter. That, mm -hmm. that is a different level of uh, mentality than being self-employed because then you're just replacing one income for another, which is fine, which is totally fine. But it's, it, it's just a difference. So identifying what your goal is as a business owner is always the first step to me. I think once you get in business, and I cannot stress this enough to anyone who is listening who owns a business, is know your worth as a business owner. Know the value of whatever good or service that you're selling. Because if, if your bank account doesn't match the brilliance that you bring to your business, then that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's all good to, to make a widget that caught that you're selling for ten dollars because you want people to buy it. But if that widget costs you nine dollars and fifty cents. Then, you know, it what's what's the purpose? So I think knowing the value of whatever it is that you are selling or what service it is that you are you are marketing to sell and then then pricing accordingly, because mm -hmm. when our community sometimes un underprices at higher rates than other communities for whatever reason. Um, it's almost as if, you know, our, our ice isn't cold enough, you know, which is not the case. It's not the case. But I, I think sometimes it's that fear. Well, if I if I charge too much, then maybe maybe they won't buy it or maybe they won't come to my store if I over. So if I go lower then you know, and, and I think that's that's the mistake that we make a lot. So I think if I could just give too quick, it would be that one, to know exactly what your why is for starting a business. And then two, make sure that your pricing um, matches with the amount of effort, time, and resources that go into actually putting that product or service together. I think you are so right. Um, I have definitely experienced that that struggle with pricing because you have these thoughts like, well, how do I price it so that people will buy it? Because I think there is that, there's that fear. I think, especially within our community, I guess maybe we intuitively know that the dollar doesn't stay in our community very long. So we're, we're thinking we're trying to keep it a little bit longer by underpricing ourselves. But you're very right that if you don't know your own value, no one else will, right? And if you underprice your services, you will attract people who already from the get-go don't value your services. And that's not what you want to attract to your business. Uh, so that's yeah. that's a great reminder. Uh, so I appreciate that. Um, 
And then you you kind of started talking about this a little bit in terms of being a growth strategist and how you grow your business. A lot of times I think that, especially at, as Black people, we are hardworking. We're very creative. We have lots of ideas. So I think starting the business sometimes is, is easy because we have a passion. We know what we want to do. And with all that energy and that passion and excitement, we're ready to get started. But then I think sometimes we get to a place where we get stuck and we don't know how to grow it. Uh, we don't even know how to grow it to the place where we were placing our income from the job we left. And then if we do have that goal of being able to hire six people or 60 people, we don't know how to do that either. So I would love for you to share some growth strategies. Um, I guess first starting off with just getting to that point where you want to just replace your own salary. And then from the standpoint of wanting to just really make, um, make wealth, create wealth, have a legacy, create opportunities in your community by having a business where you can hire people. Sure, sure. Um, I think marketing is always going to be key, right? It's always what drives a business to grow is how other how, how you communicate that your business is here, that you've started a business, that your, op your doors are open, whether it's your brick and mortar or your virtual doors are open for, for business and that you're ready for people to spill in. That's what you think when you start is that people are just going <laughs> to want what I'm selling. I'm so passionate about it. I, I know that they're going to want it. Um, and sometimes it takes you getting that passion out of the way uh, to really focus on what it will take for your business to sustain. Because there's, I can promise you there's someone out here that's still passionate about A-Tracks, right? But <laughs> the market doesn't want an A-Track. You know, what, what does the market want right now? Um, and are you answering a need in the marketplace? And that's, that's very important for growth. And I think we saw that with COVID is that we saw a lot of businesses that when COVID hit, boom, they were forced to either quickly pivot one way or mm -hmm. quickly get out of the lane altogether. And so those businesses that were able to quickly adapt and quickly shift whatever it was that they may have been doing at the time and adapt to, you know, we heard about all of those, um, the companies that were like uh, liquor distributors turning into now all of a sudden they were making hand sanitizer because some of the ingredients were the same and they just quickly pivoted in order to kind of fulfill a need. And they, you know, they were able to maintain their revenues because they were able to, to pivot. And I think a lot of times that growth kind of depends on how you respond to, to the market and how you're testing your products, testing your services in the mark, in the marketplace to understand what's working and what's not working. Um, at the beginning of COVID, uh, my husband and I brought, bought the Car My Yard franchise and it was, it, we answered a need, you know, in our community, no one was going outside. We weren't having birthday parties. We weren't doing anything. So it was a perfect time to buy this franchise where we can bring, you know, signs to the homes and, you know, businesses of people that couldn't celebrate with their loved ones. They could not yeah. be around them. So now they have, you know, and that business for us, you know, it unlocked, a, a, you know, a, a market that we didn't even know existed. You know, it, it or, or didn't know, people probably didn't even know they wanted it until it showed up and didn't even know they needed yeah. it because of the pandemic. Um, so we were able to kind of tap into something right at the perfect time that really kind of diversified the revenue that we were kind of bringing in under uh, the Consult Square brand. Um, so I think that that is important when you talk about growth is how you're able to adapt quickly, the type of marketing strategies that you put in place that um, allow you to reach the audience, being able, you know, everyone is so dependent on social media, but social media is not mm -hmm. the, av the avenue for every single business. It's not the end all be all of how, you know, every single type of business is marketed. Um, and they're, they're all individual roads that we have to take in order to hit that plateau of growth that we're looking for. Yeah. 
So what are some of the other top ways to market? Uh, for instance, with your business, the Yard My Card, what are some of the marketing um, strategies you used? We use Google um, Google Business a lot. So we, we do a lot of analytics. We do a lot of uh, kind of micro-targeted advertising. Um, and then we also do word of mouth. We work with schools. We outreach to community center. I mean, any anything that deals with people celebrating, we've we've touched it in some way. Um, also, and and this this kind of goes with the industry of car my yard, and it, but it goes against something I said earlier about pricing. But we also do a lot of community service. We do a lot of um, we give away a lot, you know, and. It's mm -hmm. it's really to not just for the the good of being a you know a strong community partner, but also because we want people to see our brand. We want them to see our product on the yard of you know the the fairground or you know the yard of a school and our business associated with it, so that they you know we did a school a few weeks ago for back to school and just from one one welcome back sign you know i we probably got 20 or 30 cards uh calls for signs over the course of the of, of, of the fall so you know i think it just depends on the business what the marketing strategy is but google um definitely for for us has worked very well um and they, I was able to do very targeted uh, marketing campaigns within uh, the Google business program. We do do social media, um, but I, on the flip side for my consulting business, that looks a little bit different because I don't really do a lot of marketing on any platforms. It's more B2B. So I, mm -hmm. with that business, I want to be in front of other businesses. That might mean I need to go to a trade show. That might mean I need mm -hmm. to go to an event where I'm able to speak in front of an audience or to, to talk and to make those connections. Um, when it comes to contracting, be it in the private or the public sector, that might mean hiring someone who can, who can do RFPs and um, that mm -hmm. can help you know, to kind of draft those for the business and respond to any type of solicitations that might come from a federal agency for opportunity. So it looks a little different for me on the consulting side because it's more B2B as opposed to direct consumer. That makes sense. Thank you so much for breaking that down. That was awesome information. Um, another thing that you do is partnerships and alliances. And I think as, as an entrepreneur, I am anxious to be in partnership with other businesses, but how do you identify what other business or individual might make a good partner? And then how do you sort of develop a partnership so that it's a win-win for both, for both parties? Yes, I, I am a strong advocate for partnerships, for joint uh, collaborations, uh, for joint ventures, because a little bit of something is more than nothing, you know, and when, especially when you're looking at big business and going after larger contracts, um, a lot of times what, what is daunting to businesses of color is that we don't have the capacity to take on, you know, a 50, 60 million dollar contract, mm -hmm. right? Because to me, something that would be, you know, $500,000, that sounds good. But to a, a target, they want someone who has the capacity to take on something much larger, right? So that's when the conversation around partnerships and kind of these joint ventures, it makes a lot of sense. Because if there's a large, say, construction firm, and this is this is a part of the work that I do at uh, NMSDC, um, and the, go the government is infamous for the what, what they call bundling of contracts. So they'll put, uh, say, a, a construction contract that's worth a couple billion dollars uh, for a bridge. They'll put a construction contract together, and um, within the construction contract, 
they have legal, they have marketing, they have, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of other built into this construction contract. So in theory, does a construction company really need to do marketing? No. But what what they've done is bundled it all together. Right. So advocacy groups, as well as other lawmakers, are in the process now of unbundling all of that. Because when Mm -hmm. you bundle it, what you do is you box out many businesses of color because we don't have the capacity to do a $50 billion contract, you know, construction job, nor do I want to. Um, So with these unbundling, you know, they're unbundling. And so now this 50, you know, 50,000, 100,000, $200,000 piece for marketing now is is something that I can I can bid on that when you when you take it apart and you can throw in something you can throw in accounting and marketing and here I have you know Stephanie who has a consulting a, a consulting business she does accounting now Stephanie and I can come in and bid on this together we can bid on this right. and now we look like we have much more capacity because we've banded together as 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 one venture that can take on a project that that is much bigger. So whether that's a 50-50 or a 70-30, whatever that looks like, we decide that before we even go in to bid on it. But now it's something that we can tackle. And I think even on a smaller level, when we kind of make these partnerships and these alliances, what it allows us to do is is simply expand our capacity. Um, And it, it sometimes is difficult to find, you know, that that person or that company that would be a good alignment for us. I think there are several groups and I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head. And of course, nothing is coming to me where they actually kind of bring those kind of partnerships together. Um, As you mentioned, I'm on the third and it is a a Mm -hmm. collaboration of women in business. You know, so there are several ways to kind of get connected with other people that may be in a kind of parallel uh, industry that may be uh, a great kind of complement to what it is that that I might offer or what it is that the next company might offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I am really excited to see all of the entrepreneurs and philanthropists and those of us who are building wealth and those of us with our regular jobs, JLBs, um, there's room for all of it. I think as um, as black people, as people of color, some of us are the first generation of wealth builders. So how do we take the wealth that we build uh, and have it, of course, benefit our families, but also not just benefit our families, but increase uh, benefit the community as well and help to kind of build this black Wall Street? Yeah, and I think it goes back to to my earlier point is just to be intentional about our our spending, to be intentional about the things that we expose and open our our families to, and you know when 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 I say intentionality about about spending, you know we want to get our dollar in our community for longer than six hours or longer than six days, um, and I hear well. It's, it's no black this in my community. There's not a black McDonald's. There's not a black Starbucks. Um, and it, it's interesting because I, I talked to a, a very good friend of mine who is, and he, he turned me on to this a few years ago, um, the, the president of the U.S. Black Chamber of Commerce, Ron Busby. And he was like, you know, there he gave me a list. And he was like, these are all the, I gave him a list of my favorite stores, my favorite restaurants. And, you know, he's he like, here's a list of the black, um, these are the black owners that are in your area. And he said, I want you to go to this a black owned Starbucks in um, in PG mm-hmm. County. He said, buy a gift certificate or a gift card for a hundred dollars. He said, you can use that at any Starbucks, but now you've intentionally you've made an intentional decision, intentional decision now that you are gonna patronize a black business. No, anywhere you go. Same thing with Chick-fil-A. I know where all the black owned Chick-fil-A is. <laughs> wow. um, you know, and it's just about being intentional about your buying habits so that you can continue 
to sow into the black community to and to be and to do that around your kids so that they can watch the intentionality behind your spending. And mm-hmm. I, my, you know, my kids have well, one of them. My so my older son, he has a bus- a business that he had started a few years ago. Um, and so I teach him early. He took an, inv- an investment class over the summer at. Um, Howard County Community College a couple years ago and learned all about investing. So he started an investment club with about four of his friends, all black boys, uh, with a um, a financial advisor from Howard County uh, who has wow. helped them over the last few years to grow their combined portfolio to upwards of $10,000 just for... Wow young black boys under the age of, well, now they're about 14 years old, but at the time that they started, they were like 11, 12 years old. Um, And just with like spare change over the course of the years, just investing in themselves. And, you know, so I think hitting it from all fronts, you know, and it, it can be aggressive when I talk about it because I kind of live it from, from day to day. Um, But even starting small, you know, just kind of making that intention to, yeah, to support when when events are happening that you know there are going to be you know businesses of color that are vending to go out and and to 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 pay full price for what they're what they're selling, um, it it makes a difference. Yeah, that is awesome. That now that just blew my mind. What you just um, shared about looking for black owned franchises and buying a gift card. And then using the gift card at whatever Starbucks or whatever Chick-fil-A. Um, I think that that is life-changing. I think that if we could have everybody do that, we could really start to make a difference and make a dent in uh, the, the Black wealth and keeping the money circulating in our community. And I think it's also awesome um, about your son's business. And that's very inspiring or and empowering for our young people. Uh, that was awesome. Now, we, you mentioned the third, and we share several circles together. We're both members of the third and um, our sorority, as well as Jack and Jill. Uh, so you, how do you find the time? And I know you said that early on you were used to just doing a lot of things. But how do you find the time or how do you find the balance amongst all of your roles? You're, you know, you're an adjunct professor. You're a business owner. You... Um, you're in all these organizations. So you do a lot, your mom, how do you, how do you balance it? Yeah. And, and my life is very compartmentalized. Uh, and I, I read this book um, about, I would say maybe seven or eight years ago now. And it was called um, the, the, the four hour work week. And uh in this book, the, the author talks about how he went through, he had a nine to five job, but how he kind of transitioned his work week down to four hours simply by kind of compartmentalizing his actions and, um, and his, his day-to-day. And from things to like as small as responding to text messages, to checking the mail, to, you know, it, it was very compartmentalized. And I kind of took bits and pieces of that book to heart and in my own life, kind of compartment in, in the course of my day, I do probably a hundred unique things. And that is no exaggeration. Um, and a part, pro, pro, this probably my mind is so scattered that I, I need it to, to, to stay sane. But a part of it is that intentional compartmentalization that I feel like I've kind of mastered at this point is that I, I do, you know, when I, when I do things for Coppin and when I plan lesson plans, it's at a very, I have a very finite time that I work, you know, for, for school things. My office hours for my students is, you know, when to reach me. Yeah, I have a very, you know, my schedule for, uh, when I take clients for uh, Consult Square is very finite, but the biggest mm-hmm. chunk of my time goes to my family and my kids. And I, I, I like to always be open to whatever it is that they have going on and whatever it is that they want to do. And I think 
the beauty of the last few years is that, you know, I've been at home a lot more um, and I haven't, you know, traveled as much as I used to. So I'm, you know, I'm home in the morning. I'm home, you know, during the day. I'm home when they get home from school. Uh, so I'm, I'm able to be kind of present throughout their entire day and their week. Um, and I, it, it has made a difference uh, because I have that kind of crunch time during the day that I get everything done. So that top and that bottom half of my day are strictly for, for them. Um, I get up extremely early um, <laughs> and I have th- a set of things that I do in the morning uh, but then there's a gap when I have to get them up and get them ready and get them, you know, and have our conversations and kind of that fuel that I need and that they need to have a productive day. And then we do that again at the end of the day. So, you know, I, I try to be very intentional about the time. And I keep using that word because it's, it's like a theme mm-hmm. is to really be intentional about my time and uh, where, where, I, where I put it. But really what, what kind of gives me that time to do everything that I take on is making sure that it, it fits into a place in, in, in my day. Um, and I, I say no to a lot. <laughs> uh, and it seems like I do a lot, but I probably say no to even more uh, than, than I do. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I do because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. And I was asked in an interview, um, it might've been maybe five or six months ago, it was in the winter. And they asked how I make decisions on what I say yes and no to. And I had, you know, a checklist. And, and the, the first thing was, you know, is it something that um, my entire family is passionate about? Is it mm-hmm. something that brings joy and value to our family? And so when I look at everything that I do, it's really wrapped up in family. You know, it's wrapped up in legacy building. It's wrapped up in all of that because that's why I'm doing it. That's what I'm here for. You know, everything can kind of fade away, but if if it's not great for them, then it, it will never be great for me, you know? So that's that's why I do it. So that has to remain my first priority at all times. Yeah. Um, I love that. So many different things that you said, I could ask a thousand questions, but I know we, our time is, is coming short. So I have one question that I always ask of all my guests, and that is about limiting beliefs. Um, just hearing you talk about how intentional you are about how you spend your time, about how you make decisions, about how you run your businesses and grow your businesses. What limiting beliefs did you have to overcome in order to get to this this place where you're able to just kind of be able to say no and move on, where you're able to compartmentalize what you're doing into specific segments of your day? And if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Yeah, and it that doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight that you get out of your own way. Um, and I can I can remember probably up until maybe 10, 10 years ago, I would I had a way that I presented myself that was the way that I I knew made other people comfortable. So I would always tell people, they were like, why don't you wear your hair in braids? Your hair looks so great in braids. I can't go to work with my hair in braids. That, what will people think of me if I have my hair? You know, and, and so it took me a while to get out of my own way because I kept thinking, what is someone else going to think about me if I say this or if I look this way or if I uh, do this thing? How, how will I be accepted? Um, and it wasn't until... I accepted myself for who I am, flaws and all, and was very real about the things that I, my own story, my own journey, my failures, my successes, and I accepted them and I forgave myself that I was able to say, I'm, I am who I am. I am the person that God made me to be unique and creative and funny and, you know, sometimes a little bitchy, but 
nonetheless, I am me, take it or leave it, um, that I was able to really get that confidence to step out in a lot of spaces in my life because I was really following, you know, the, the steps that were kind of in front of, front of me. You know, when I was in high school, you go, you go to high school, you go to college, you get out of college, you get a good job. You know, there were things that were in place that you just do out of habit. There was, you know, it was the, the right thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, I just did those things. And it wasn't until I kind of came to that point where it was, I understood that it's nothing wrong with being different. I tell my son this all the time. You don't have to look like everybody. You don't have to wear your hair like it. You don't have to listen to everything that everybody else listens to. You know, if they jump off the bridge, you all you know, so, and and it's 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 okay to be different. Um, and I, I have a love hate relationship with you know the the screen time and the amount of you know because they're 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 exposed to everything. But I think in them being exposed to everything, they're kind of okay with it. They're okay with uh, mm-hmm. the freedom of people being who they are. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I just remember a time, you know, and, and I was in middle school and uh, in the eighties that we all kind of dressed alike, you know, <laughs> we didn't want to <laughs> be the one that was, that was, that looked different or that, you know, and now I, I I'm probably the, you know, I, I pride myself on being different. <laughs> You know, I, I want people to remember me for, you know, for the extension locks for, you know, for, for whatever it is I have going on that month, um, because I think that makes that makes me me. And that's that's what makes people interesting. And it makes life interesting is when you can bring out all of those qualities about yourself that are unique and interesting and still be able to make an impact in the world and have people accept and accept you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, I wanted to just, as we uh, wrap up, I just wanted to say, thank you. This has been an amazing conversation. I have 50 more questions in my head. Uh, so <laughs> I may have to invite you back when you, um, when you have I'd time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, But I just wanted to just ask you to just share with everyone how they can follow you, how they can reach you, if they need a card, if they need consulting services, uh, how they can support you. Yeah, um, all of my social media uh, are Miss MRS, Mrs. Jathita. So Mrs. is my first name. That's Instagram and Facebook and uh, LinkedIn is just my Jathita Hernandez. Uh, the card my yard is card card my yard um, cardmyyard.com backslash Howard. If you're looking for a celebration sign, uh, if you're looking for any type of consulting services, that's consultsquaregroup.com. Um, and then if you're looking for uh, any type of certifications for your business. Um, my email address, that's nmsdc.org, jathita.hernandez at nmsdc.org. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, you heard it. We've got some great knowledge tonight. Everybody enjoy your Labor Day weekend. And thank you again. And we will get our lunch in and we will. Yes. Uh, yes. I can't uh, wait. We will <laughs> another time to talk. Uh, Good night. Thanks so much. Thank you.